Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of BM Discourse. Today, we're with David Tizard. Now, for context, I'm currently in South Korea doing some studies, and so um, David's one of the professors that's um, lecturing us within the University of Hangyang. Um, now, David's an assistant professor at Seoul Women's University, where he teaches Korean culture. I got that right this time. Um, he also teaches politics um, and history at Hangyang University, where I'm currently studying. Um, he also writes on society, politics, culture, history, diplomacy, and international relations, basically the lot when it comes to um, Korea and its current stance on everything. Um, and, of course, he's got his own podcast called Korea Deconstructed. Um, we'll definitely provide a link for that so that um, you all can check that out. There's the uh, the famous pose. Um, <laughs> um, before we jump in, was that was that accurate, David? Was that was the introduction? Uh, you missed out how handsome I am, Bakar. That was the oh. only thing. But other than that, yeah, very good. It, it, it's a it's a pleasure to be here on BM Discourse. Thank you for having me, mate. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much, David. Um, now, to contextualize why I'm having um, these type of discussions, um, now, being in Korea and being exposed to how booming Korea is when it comes to its economy, um, how successful it is when it comes to its political system, um, some may disagree, but just to generalize that, um, a question that came to mind and something that I've been trying to discover is how Korea achieved such success when it comes to its politics, its economics, etc. And of course, how we achieved it in such a um, such such a quick time period. And what we'll do today is we'll go through a few milestones, perhaps that can explain how this whole success occurred. And of course, um, as we took in class, um, there are sort of milestones that have influenced um, Korea's boom. Um, now, before we jump in, maybe we can start from history and starting from the period of something like the Joseon dynasty, when that was, and then um, maybe you can run us through some of the milestones that Korea went through um, to get it to where it, uh, where it currently is. Yeah, okay. Uh, so just, uh, again, thank you for having me, Bakar. Uh, looking forward to a conversation with you. Um, the Joseon dynasty is one of the longest running dynasties in world history, actually. It runs from 1392 until the start of the 20th century. Some people ended at 1897 when Korea becomes its own empire, some 1905, some 1910. The, the finish date is not really that important, but what you want to understand is that it ran from around 1400 to 1900, and there's an incredibly long period of time. Uh, what made it different from what came before was that it institutionalized in South Korea Confucianism. Now, Confucianism is an incredibly slippery topic to get hold of. You know, it, it's very hard to define what it is, but what it was doing, it was moving away from previous. Uh, Buddhism had been a ruling ideology before in Korea. What Confucianism did, it implemented um, things like state civil exams. So it was meant to implement a meritocracy where your rise up the social ladder wouldn't be based on uh, blood or hereditary traits. There was this thing called the bone rank system uh, going back a long way. But Confucianism was meant to provide this new sort of cultural, political, economic legitimacy. During this time, you get the birth of the Korean language. You get most of sort of Korean literature and music as we know it today. Um, it comes during that time. Now, what I find really interesting is that this period from this kind of, what is it, 500-year period, many Korean people will look 
some Korean people, historians and scholars will look back at that time and talk about all the invasions, the suffering and, and things like that. But then you get other scholars like David C. Kang, who calls that a, a, a period of really relative peace. Now, uh, I, I, there were two invasions of Korea during that time, one the invasion from Japan uh, and one the invasion from the north. Now, in 500 years, that's not bad. I mean, if you consider what mainland Europe goes through with the Catholic Protestant wars and everything else, um, you, you're, you're getting a war every century at least. And so the Joseon dynasty is a period of stability, internal stability. Um, and that stability is largely created by Chinese hegemony in the region. So there's this huge power, which is China, Right? And China has the emperor uh, and everybody wants to be culturally close to China. And South Korea is the, the closest country to China. And so that large hegemony without hegemonic power, without any rivals, creates huge stability. I mean, if you want to look into international relations and things like that, you can look at polarity and what's the safest. If you have one big power, two great powers, multiple great powers in this part of the world for that 500 years, there was just China. And everybody else, they were growing their own culture and doing their own things. But, you know, China was the big daddy. China had the emperor. And whether you call uh, Joseon, Korea during that time, like a vassal state, a tributary state, uh, you know, uh, something under the protection of China, the, the words are very difficult, but it achieved great stability and security. And part of that was because it, its own internal focus and the reforms that it was doing, but also the, the broader environment in which it was in. It was a very stable environment for the region then. Okay. I'm not sure if that helps. I, I, yeah. you know, there's, there's so much on it, but mm. this is to give you some ideas. Yeah, no, that contextualizes things. And then, of course, there's the shift away from the Joseon dynasty. So it sort of reaches its peak, would you say, uh, in, in like the late 1800s? Um, in which, so, so what causes the shift where Korea feels like, you know what, I'm, I, I'm strong enough to declare this sort of independence where it tries to transition to an empire, but which also leads it to its own demise um, in some sense. I don't know if that's how you'd describe it, um, but yeah, what, what causes that shift and then, you know, transitioning to colonization? I don't want to take agency away from uh, Korean people, obviously, but a lot of that is determined by white guys arriving on boats with drugs and guns. I mean, you get the opium wars with China and, and that's when uh, the, the British come in um, wanting to sell opium. They, they're using a form of gunboat diplomacy, uh, taking things through force if they're not going. And, you know, previously China had pushed away these, uh, the United Kingdom or Britain and all that and said, we don't want you. We don't need you here. Like, go away. Take all your fancy stuff. It's very nice to meet you, but bye-bye. Now, countries like Britain, they were not taking that. And so they came back with guns and they said, no, come on, you open up. Commodore Perry from America uh, goes to Japan and, and uses gunboat diplomacy there. What happens is Japan is the first to realize this sea of change, right? So the age of imperialism, the age of colonialism, right? During this 1800s, right? The 19th century, that's starting to uh, come into full force technological changes around the world uh, allow people to travel further, travel faster. And so they're interacting with different cultures. And Japan, uh, with the Meiji Restoration and with people like Fukuzawa Yukichi, they realize we either do that or we get swallowed up by this colonialism. So Japan was the first to start. It sent its people 
uh, around to Germany, to Europe, to the United States and said, go and learn what they're doing, come back and we're going to do that. Now, this wasn't a unanimous decision. Of course, there were some in Japan that were for it, some against it. But Japan went from like a, a samurai society when they were walking around with you know, swords and things like that into a modern society. They started wearing suits. They started attending parliaments. They modernized very quickly. And they did that in order that they wouldn't be colonized. Now, a really interesting thing is that these other powers, when sort of Britain and Germany and Russia and the United States saw Japan doing that, they said, you're almost like us, Japan except you don't have any colonies. And so Japan was then trying to copy what the other countries were doing. So it beats Russia in the, the Russo-Japanese War 1905. And that's huge, right? Because nobody, when we talk today about like BTS topping billboards or Parasite winning Oscars and people are like, well, I can't believe this is happening. Multiply that by 20 and you get the Japanese beating the Russians in war. Because at that time... Asian people are simply not meant to be white people. And I, I don't use those terms disrespectfully, but social Darwinism was in the air. That's mm -hmm. why colonialism was taking place. People believed that there were levels of civilization, levels of achievement. There was no kind of thing as human rights. You know, it wasn't like we're all the same. It was like, no, we're better than you. So we'll colonize you. So the, Japan goes through that quickest. And in Korea, at the same time, you have people inside Korea saying, we should follow that. So you have characters like Yugil Jun, who was, uh, you know, I'd say a student or a friend of Fukuzawa Yukichi. But then you had people in Korea were saying, no, we've got to shut off from the outside world and maintain what we've been doing. Right. And so in all the countries, you had this internal force between there are these new ways of life that we should adapt. And this other one saying, no, we need to protect our ways of life. So you have internal uh, tension. And you have external tension with all this coming and it creates a maelstrom like this whirlwind of activity of colonizations of empires rising and falling all of which these countries sometimes have little control over for better or worse and uh korea is caught up in the middle of that the expression people sometimes like to use in korea is that it's a shrimp between whales um and when the whales fight the shrimp's back is broken Right. So while all of these bigger powers are fighting and doing all these things, Korea, which some part of it just wants to be left alone, that's simply not possible. Mm. And so it decides in 1897 or, or before then, you know, there's there's factions inside Korea saying we've got to modernize. We've got to do these things. And there are factions that were still very much against that. So one of the things I, I, I'll try not to speak too much here, but I guess one of the things is we often talk of. Japan, America, Britain, Australia, as single unitary objects that do stuff, right? America did this, Britain did that, Korea wanted this. But then you're generalizing a whole group of people. But inside that Korea, there's all these different factions that want different things. Mm. Uh, and so that was very much the reality. I, I guess I should just make one more point, which is that like the missionaries, when they come, not everybody was coming with guns and flags and saying, we're taking this land. Uh, a lot of people were coming over with Bibles and things like that. And the missionaries played a very big role in Korea. They were friends with the royal family, uh, established the first school for girls, hospitals, newspapers, all of the things actually that we take for granted in, in countries today that are 
part of modernization and part of democracy, such as education for everybody, uh, newspapers, which provide information for everybody, hospitals, which help people. These things, a lot of them, majority of them perhaps were established first by missionaries that came over um, because Choson was a very aristocratic society and it focused very much on the men uh, and it focused very much on the elite. Uh, reports come out if you read something like Gregory Henderson's Vortex of the Politics. South Korea was a slave society, not in the American sense. You have to understand its own slave society. But around 40% of the population in Joseon are reported to be slaves. And this is only outlawed in 1894 through the Japanese-led Gabo reforms. So if, if you just take that like slavery going right up until the end of the 19th century and then where it is today, to understand today, you really need to understand what it was 120 years ago. Mm. And when you do that, the transformation is just mind-blowing. Mm. It wasn't a slow burn like this over centuries. It was just, wow, it's done it all in such a short period of time. Okay. Um, two questions, um, and this might highlight my ignorance a bit. Um, when you spoke of Japan, you mentioned the Meiji restor Restoration, I think you was. Um, so the first is, can you explain what that is? Um, and then the second is, what was Japan's status before it sort of recognized this, um, you know, this global battle that's going on and the need to become this um, imperialist power? And what was its status? So we understand like Korea was sort of this... Um, what would you call it, like the child of China? Um, what was Japan's status at the time? It's been a long time since I've read on the Meiji Restaurant. I've been doing <laughs> Korean studies for a long time. I have some books on it on my bookshelf, but it's like, you know, when you finish certain parts of graduate school, you just don't read them. But it's you want to understand it as a change from a kind of like a feudal society to a modern society. Uh, okay. And so it was the samurais putting away their swords and putting on neckties. If you want to understand it visually, that's what they did. And it was a it was a conscious decision. Right. And it was a conscious decision for it to happen quickly so as to survive in the international arena. And, you know, we often look at modernity like. In South Korea, people don't wear handbooks anymore. They don't wear the traditional clothes. All around the world, people wear the same clothes now, basically. You know, it might, um, you know, fads and trends and styles, but we all kind of wear jeans and hoodies and trainers and, and sneakers and stuff, don't we? Like, for the most part, traditional dress is gone. And you can understand the Meiji Restoration in one way by doing that. Let's put away these traditional forms of dress and let's adopt the suit. And so that was just the external manifestations, but that was also going to apply to law, to politics, to the economy, to the military. Everything was going to be modeled on variations of the European and North American systems because when they looked at them, they said they they just destroyed China. They, they toppled China. They're going to topple us. And so we either, one of the... Uh, one of the the comments going around because if you read the literature and the reports at the time they would often talk about people outside of this cultural civilization of china korea and japan they'd call them things such as barbarians like oranke or yamanin people outside of civilization right so there were people that knew confucianism knew this way of life and those outside the walls they were the barbarians they were uncultured they were uncouth but what was happening is the bar the barbarians 
were winning. They were coming over here with, and they were able to just do that. So that's the reason for Japan um, going through that process. Now, what Japan's status was, China was definitely the hegemon. Like, so Chungguk, like Chung means middle. So that was the middle kingdom. That was the center. That was the center of heaven and earth for this cultural, uh, regional set of countries, right? That was the gravity. That was around which everything rotated. And people would send um, tributaries there. They would send people every few years to go and pay homage to the emperor. That's why uh, Korea only had a king and not an emperor, because to have an emperor would put you level with China. You can do that. Japan, in that, in that way, um, Japan was the island nation. So it had, you know, being off the coast, it had its culture changing a little bit more. And for many people in Korea, or Joseon, they would look down on Japan. I think still many do, but they would look down upon it because it was further removed from the Confucian Chinese culture. Right. And so it was we're closer to China and we're we're the stronger bastions of that Confucian tradition than you. And so we're more civilized. We're more righteous. We're more benevolent. Uh, and so it wasn't about modernity or technology making them superior, but it was about their uh, preservation and keeping of the Confucian ways of life, which they saw the Japanese as having gone off on their own little paths being geographically removed. So when Japan modernized first and then defeats Russia, defeats China, colonizes Korea, does all of this, it was like the younger brother that's not meant to do that is doing that. And that caused a great um, psychological, cultural shock as well. You know, it, it would have been more understandable, I think, for Koreans if it was China that colonized them. You know, that would have been like, well, yeah, look at the size of them. They're big. But for Japan to have done it, it was like, no, 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 not you. You're you're not meant to be capable of doing that. But they did. <laughs> Again, I, th I think that will lead us to um, when we get to a, a few of the uh, or maybe trying to understand why Korea slash Korea Japan relations um, are, are a bit tough to get through. Uh, and of course, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, Let me just make one point, if I can, on this, Picard, because it's important. Like, for example, you and I, we can sit here and um, despite the decades of age difference between us, we can chat and you can be Picard and I can be David. And, and that's totally fine. In Confucian relations, that doesn't work. There's always somebody with seniority and the seniority is based on age or position or things like that and with seniority the relationships are <clears throat> relationships are hierarchical and there would have been that element of it between china korea and japan as well so individual relationships are hierarchical between me and you but also between nations as well so it's not just perception but it's embedded into the culture and mm. way of life that there is there's a status and there's a ranking right so that just plays it out a bit more Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess the lens of understanding modern modern Korea and then Korea throughout even the 19th century and, of course, before that, um, through the lens of Confucianism helps a lot, helps a lot in just 
understanding why certain things are the way they are. So, so whether it's, whether it's you know the way that the military functions, whether it's just getting on a bus and how you're meant to interact there, whether it's how you order how, how you order food, whether it's um, how you conduct yourself in a class, all that through the lens of Confucianism, you, you sort of understand why practices are are the way they are here. Because without that lens, you're like. I don't get it. <laughs> right. And then you put this lens of, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that explains it. Just, yeah, the concept of hierarchy and Confucianism and, and understanding that sense of respect and, and honor. And, and yeah, so, you know, that, that does help. And so going back now, um, you mentioned Korea then undergoes colonization by Japan. So Japan becomes this power, it colonizes Korea in, um, what is it, the annexation occurred in like 1905, and then colonization in 1910, I think. Very I good, because There you go, my classmates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then what, what happens then? What, what, what happens to Korea? When Japan colonizes uh, Korea, there was, you know, part of that people will point to an agreement between the United States and Japan that uh, the United States would get the Philippines and Japan would get Korea. Um, and, and so there's this kind of quid pro quo thing going on. Is it the Taft-Katsura Agreement of 1905 where that's kind of laid out? Some people will debate if that's actually what it is, but a preliminary view of that would be, well, you have that one and we'll have this one. There are also other powers in there, um, you know, Russia, uh, Britain, America, Japan. They all have um, people on the ground in Korea while that's going on. And so it takes place in, in that China as well would have had some influence here. It's Japan that colonized it. Now, what happens 1910 to 1945, it's not just one period of colonization, but it goes through various phases. And a, a lot of scholars will point to three different phases. Now, in the beginning, I mean, I, I've always looked at the idea of colonization and, and, and questioned how does it work? Like, how do you go into a foreign country with far fewer troops than the local population and say, do as we say, and you do it without like getting your ass kicked? How does that work? Why don't the people just like storm the Bastille, rush the Kremlin and just be like, get out you foreign nonsense we we're seeing in ukraine right there's you could say that there's an attempt of colonization it's not colonization quite but there's an invasion and the people of ukraine are pushing back they're getting support from the outside but i've often wondered like how does that work how did so few japanese troops uh eventually commandeer and take uh this land that we're on right now and claim it for their own without a huge bloody uprising uh, and resistance. That, it's, that's a very important question to consider. When they get it in 1910, um, around that period, like Woodrow Wilson, uh, he's trying to establish the League of Nations and he's trying to talk about, because World, world War One erupts, right? And, and, and that's a huge like devastation to the world. And so there's this desire for peace and there's this kind of like all countries must have their own sovereignty. All countries must, and this goes back to the Treaty of Westphalia, all countries must be able to tell their own story and be their own thing. And the people of Korea who've just had their country taken away from them, right? This is, this is no longer Korea. This becomes Japan. Seoul gets transformed into Kaijo. Um, people of Korea hear that and they're like, we absolutely agree. We want some of that as well. 
unfortunately, most of their pleas in Korea, they fall on deaf ears because these ideas of national sovereignty and uh, self-determination at the time, they're only seen as uh, applicable to European nations or white nations or things like this. So um, that doesn't really help. In 1919, so uh, nearly a decade after it's been colonized, you have the Samil Undong uh, movement, which is the March 1st. And this is a, a, a peaceful... There's so much more that goes on in all these times, but I'll try to keep it. But this is a really pivotal moment. This is when um, the you get this signatory of Korean people and, and this march through the capital, relatively peaceful. They're not trying to take the country back by force, but they're waving Korean flags um they're they're chanting for sort of manse. they're saying independence and bravo to independence viva it's really hard to translate manse um but that's what they're chanting and there's this big uprising it's unfortunately not successful and so the japanese push back and and they they kill people and they try to suppress this uprising because if the people are claiming independence for japan do you give it to them or do you push back they push back and so you have this negotiation between some people in korea who benefit from colonization right so you get these you get for example a group of women called shinyosong these new women and during this period women are allowed to to sing and wear Western clothes. They're no longer, uh, you know, restricted to the inside parts of the house. Uh, people that were not Yangban, that were not aristocrats during the Joseon dynasty, suddenly find themselves able to rise up through the ranks and, and, and achieve social mobility. So some Korean people are benefiting from that. And that's a very difficult conversation today. They're still called Chinilpa, people friendly to Japan. But you get the people that suffer from it. In about the late to mid mid to late 1930s, Japan starts increasing its war effort. Right, so Japan, we often sometimes in the in the West we we measure World War II from various positions. Right, sort of 1939 or Hitler's invasion of Poland. I think in the future, some people say that we might not have World War One and World War Two, but we might just put it all into one big world war that never stopped and pay more attention to what was happening in other parts of the world. As Japan builds up its own war efforts, it wants to take a bigger part of Asia. It wants to become this imperial Japan that takes north and south of this region. It needs people. Uh, it needs resources. And so it starts putting Korean people into forced labor, starts putting uh, Korean women into kind of, uh, what would you call it, sexual slavery as well, in order to instill patriotism it forces the Japanese language and Japanese names on Korean people. Again, this is from about the mid to nine mid 1930s. And so, you know, the, the, the colonization period of Korea is still, it, it is still a big thing. And you look at the national holidays in Korea and it's like three of them, I think are still related to the colonization period like national holidays, right? So March 1st, you get a holiday. Uh, you get Independence Day as well is a holiday. And so there's always this celebration of the day that the light returned, the, the day that Korea came back. So in the modern understanding of Korea, that, that's a very dark time. 
other people might look at it and say some seeds of modernization were sown some some things happened but that would be a very uh, contentious argument to make in modern korea mm. yeah definitely and then i guess push so in within the first world war and i i'd actually really be keen to read on the perspective that you provided about um, merging both world wars into one milestone in history. I'd, I'd love to look into that. Um, but without getting off topic, so Korea within the First World War, would you say it's just viewed as an extension of Japan? So not really playing a role simply because they're just an extension. And then World War II is where the tides start to turn away. Um, post Hiroshima is that where just things start to crumble um, and then Korea gets its independence or how does how does that work? Uh, Korea doesn't exist at that time as we know it. So there's a couple of, like when you say Korea during World War One. I, I mean, there are Korean people that won um, medals at the Berlin Olympics in the 30s. You know, the Jesse Owens one. I forget what year is it, 34, 36? Um, but, you, you know, Korean people would win medals at those Olympics, but they're given to Japan. Mm. There is no Korea at that time. And so those people are representing Japan. You have a provisional government in Shanghai. Um, there's a couple, there's two or three provisional governments. And, and what happens is there's no, there's no unified leader of the resistance. Do you know what I mean? There's different factions that are resisting this colonization. There's also mm -hmm. factions that are supporting the colonization. Um, there's factions that are <clears throat> siding with Russia. There's factions that are siding with uh, China uh, and there's factions siding with Western powers. So there's no one really unified resistance, Korean resistance to the colonization. But probably the biggest one is the uh, Shanghai Provisional Government. That's headed by the eventual first president of South Korea, Lee Sung-man, Dr. Lee Sung-man. Um, what happens is because the Korean state is taken away, that, that bureaucracy, that centralized government policy, Korea becomes then understood through the blood or the minjok, right? So even though the, the state has gone, the people live on. And the people, what do they share? Sometimes they don't even share the same, the same culture because it was a very kind of factionalized and mountainous regional land with huge differences between those parts. But they all shared that one blood. And so you get people like Shin Cheho around that time who are lamenting um, the possible loss of their country and therefore finding the unity and the continuation of the Korean people in the blood, in the ethnicity, because that's the only thing that, that's left at that time. And that still has huge ramifications today, I think, this idea that Korean people are one drawn by blood, that, that national that ethno-nationalism that you know sometimes in other parts of the world we we really shy away from because you get ideas of nazis and, and concentration camps and things like that which is not very pleasant but over here it, it it's seen as something that saved them um one of the the questions i do in my world history class when we we look at people like franz fanon who wrote a famous book in the 60s about decolonization called the wretched of the earth fabulous uh, introduction by Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, Fanon said that decolonization has to be achieved through violence. Um, 
and in his book, he says decolonization has to be achieved through violence. And it's a very radical book, by the way. It's uh, but it appealed to many people when it was written during the 60s and 70s. Um, decolonization has to be achieved through violence because colonization is achieved through violence. So the only way to remove it is through the same thing. And achieving it through violence will create new people, new characters, new mindsets. It will it will liberate the people from that psychological, um, what he calls false consciousness. Because if you're colonized, then you start, you suddenly start to question, why are we colonized? Do we deserve to be colonized? Are we less than those people? So it creates this false consciousness, right? You get this false sense of inferiority, which is not justified, but if you spend your whole time in that lower position, you might start to question whether why that position is happening. So Fanon believed that decolonization has to be achieved through violence to get rid of that false consciousness and to create a new, more confident, powerful being. South Korea does not achieve its decolonization through uh, its own violence or nonviolence. It achieves decolonization when the United States drops uh, two atomic bombs on, uh, they're slightly different in what type of bombs they are, but in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? And so that use of violence on civilians, one, the only time in world history that we've dropped, that we've dropped, that, that nuclear bombs have been dropped, I'm, I'm British, by the way, sorry, we have our own sins, <laughs> um, that, that these weapons have been dropped on any kind of population, but not even military, but on cities. That act of violence, two acts of violence, gives South Korea its independence. Or it gives Korea, it's not South Korea, linguistic habit, mm. gives Korea its independence. And, you know, I, when I when I speak to my incredibly intelligent South Korean students at things like Hanyang, when we do world history, what would the Korean character be like today if it had achieved its decolonization through its own use of violence, if people had risen up and taken up arms against the, the colonizers, would the Korean people today be different? And it's fabulous to hear those thoughts on it because it's a hypothetical. You, you, you can't know. And it feels weird to advocate violence in a, in a modern day like this in democracies, like and it's a bit too much. But, you know, if your country and culture is being taken away from you, do you suffer or do you pick up a gun? What do you do? Mm -hmm. Eventually, the gun was picked up by the United States and they were dropped. Mm. Korea doesn't really acknowledge that violence too much, I would say. If you look at presidential speeches on uh, Independence Day, uh, August 15th, um, they'll never say, they will rarely say, uh, thanks to America. It's like, we achieved our independence and we did mm. this, right? And so th there is that element that downplays... and. All countries do that, right? All countries big big themselves up, but that incredible act of violence carried out on Japan uh, is a big part of this story. Mm. On on that point of the sort of psychological inferiority felt by the population, I think a a similar example, um, though though it's not in the same field, but a similar example that we can see in Korea is the notion of equality, right? So, in, or constitutionally speaking, um, the government allows for equality between genders, mm. um, though we don't see that within the culture itself. And the discussion that, that we've had previously about um, feminism and its appreciation in Korea and how because of, because of the lack of fight 
that occurred in Korea, that that common acceptance amongst the population isn't there. So mm. contrary to places, you know, let's say like in the Western world, where it was a battle, it, there were protests, there were riots, there were movements that came up um, to fight for equality, to fight, you know, the, the feminist movements, basically, that wasn't as apparent in Korea, right? And simply mm. because it was just given to them. So by law, you know, they were equal. And because that fight didn't occur, it, I, it seems like there are, there are still remnants of the inequality within the culture today. So legally, it seems like, you know, it's all good. Things, things are good. However, culturally speaking, which, you know, how people feel, there seems to be this lag um, where the population don't have certain beliefs of equality or at least not as, not as advanced as their legal system currently is. Um, and then the, Let me um, ask you a question, Bakar, while we're on this. Mm -hmm. What would you fight for? I mean, we, we can we can pick up the newspaper. We don't pick up newspapers anymore. You, <laughs> I, I still try to. But you know what I mean? We can look at the news and we can hear about 300 people losing their lives in a country. We can hear about a, a tragic, a great famine in the Horn of Africa. Uh, mm. We can read about temperatures reaching the 50s in India. We can read all about all these things. And what do we do? We go, that sucks. I, I, I'm trying to ask what would ever motivate you to to put things down and go that is what I fight for um, do we have guess, anything mm. maybe if something impacts me I don't know if there's a bit more emotion involved perhaps um, is there a specific thing I don't know that's um, I'd, I'd have to think about that <laughs> that's the trouble of hyper individualism and atomized people because we only fight if it affects us i see it all the time that people never talk about you know uh, kids rights but then they have kids and all their twitter posts and social media is like the government doesn't do enough for kids but that's because they've got kids now and you mm. see people and they're championing the lgbt community a lot because they're members of that community and women champion the women's community Sometimes, you know, you have to fight for a cause of which you're not personally affected. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It has to be something that you believe in. That's kind of a different point. But the first one that I was making is you said that I'd fight for something if I was personally affected by it. But we're, we're personally affected by smaller and smaller things. You know, our Netflix subscription, you know, the, the price of fuel, uh, the price of the gimbap and things like this. We become more and more hyper-individualized, atomized people that will care about less and less, and therefore unity and collective action. And collective action is how shit gets done in the world. I don't know if I'm going to swear on this. Collective action is how things get done. And that's becoming less and less likely, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, um, before we jump to... Um, post-Korean independence um, and maybe the Korean War. Um, I'm, I was currently looking into the work of, I forget the author's name, I think her name's Amar, Amar Hor, Amar Kor or something. Um, and she speaks about um, Korea and multiculturalism. And it, it's basically about your point of the nationalism that kept Korea together, though um, Korea didn't exist as, an, as, a, I don't know, as a nation, right? And she suggests... My understanding, you know, her main thesis is multiculturalism for Korea today um, 
can actually be something that comes off as a bit toxic. Um, toxic in the sense that it can it can limit. Sorry, let me let me let me rephrase. Her thesis is basically multiculturalism in Korean society today will impede Korean democracy, and her her basis for that is that the adherence to Korean culture is what promotes their civic duty and sort of based on principles of Confucianism. And so she says that if alternative cultures are introduced into Korea, alternative stories that distort or that change the understanding of culture within, within the society, that will reduce at least or remove a motive for Koreans to then defend, you know, their democracy, their state, their nation. And so she actually su suggests that, you know, there's nothing inherent or there's nothing inherently wrong with with patriotism and democracy, like the, with, with combining the two and suggesting that multiculturalism can impede a nation's democracy. Now, I haven't completely understood like the concept that she's um, trying to get to, but it just suggests that how strong the nationalism, how strong the nationhood in Korea and it sort of progressing the Korean civic duty and I believe the term, what, what, what was the term that went around in the, in the 20th century of civic duty, like in the, um, where they would go around in factories and promoting this one word for people to perform their civic duty. Um, I, I in Korea, you, you mean in the Minjun? Yeah, Minjun, there he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yes, yeah, so it's, it's basically how multiculturalism in, in Korea today might impact Minjun. And so she suggests that, you know, Korea, it, I'm, I'm not sure that she suggests this, but the conclusion that I sort of, you know, took from, from her thesis is that, you know, not exposing Korea to multiculturalism or perhaps sticking to the understanding that Korea has today of multiculturalism, which is where people simply come and adopt Korean ways. So more of an assimilation, um, you know, understanding of, of multiculturalism might be healthier for Korean democracy. It was a very that, that was a very long-winded explanation, but it just it's on the point of nationhood, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Now transitioning to post-Korean independence. So post. Be before uh, you transition, let mm -hmm. me just make one observation on that, if I can, because so um, for anybody that does or doesn't know me or, or reads or sees my work or things like that, I, I'm pretty much a hippie. I believe in love and open-mindedness to, to to people around the world, right? Um, there are elements inside not only South Korea, uh, but other nations around Asia and other parts of the world that look at what's happening in the West and say the greatest enemy to the West is the West itself. The greatest enemy to countries like the United States, like the United Kingdom, is their focus on certain, certain values. They find it uh, capable of... Um, ripping apart from the insides the very fabric of society you have to have unity now what creates a nation what creates a state what creates a community one of the things that creates it these days it's not blood right we don't say you've got to have the same blood to be in our group we, we don't do that one of the things we do say is like you've we kind of got to agree on what the story is like where does this place come from who are some of the good guys who are some of the bad guys never be a hundred percent but there has to be this kind of you know collective understanding of this what benedict anderson would call it an imagined community now 
a lot of people in Korea, not a, not all 50 million, but a lot of people in Korea will have an understanding of the history of the country, right? And it will be a monumental history in Nietzschean terms. It's 5,000 years old, and we have this dynasty and this dynasty and this dynasty, and then so on. And it's told in very, um, you know, triumphant ways. And most people will agree with that in Korea. If you look at other parts of the world, they'll be arguing over their history. People inside their own country will be arguing over their history. They'll be arguing over what this and that is. And it's not external dangers, but it's rather internal tension. The reason I bring this up is that there is definitely, you know, when when you saw the, the Black Lives Matter protests and things like that in the United States after the tragic death of George Floyd, there's this big movement in Korea where they're looking at it and going, what are they doing? Like they're, they're, they're shooting each other, they're burning each other, they're, they're tearing each other apart because there's internal division. And so what Korea tries to focus on or what has been helpful to Korea, and it's superficial, and this is not to say that all Koreans believe or do the same thing because they don't, they always protest and fight. But there is this kind of sense of Uri. It's slowly fading away, but I can understand why some people in Korea might point to uh, collective identity as being a source of uh, what it's achieved. I'll, I'll just give one final point before I shut up on this. During the Asian financial crisis of 1997, many Korean people went in and took their gold, they took their jewelry and, and they donated it to the nation. And they're like, whether we believe in the Yodang or the Yadang, the ruling party, the opposition, whether we're from the North, or the East or the West, uh, whether we're kind of secret socialists or capitalists, they were all in it together, right? I think if you ask Korean people in 2022 to donate their gold and things like that for the nation, a lot of people are just going to say, nah, mate, I'm not doing that. I think there is an element of what you say that has helped Korea get where it is today. And mm -hmm. it played a role for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. But that's obviously very different in the current age. Yeah, definitely. No, that, 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 I think that that summarizes things much better, and 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 it really pushes the question of analyzing multiculturalism. This concept that we place um, we place on such a platform, and just seeing does it fit within different nations and within different cultures? Because yeah, that's it's an interesting point. Um, something for my social studies. <laughs> um, now, yeah, so transitioning to the Korean War period. So after Korea achieves its independence. Um, so this is 1945. Um, what, what happens there? And then leading up to this split between the North and the South and what's going on at that time? Um, when America drops the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the Russian forces, the, the Soviet forces, they're making a beeline for the Korean Peninsula. They're making a beeline for Japan as well. And they're just ready to take the whole of the Korean Peninsula, right? They just and um, American troops are not close, and they send a message and say, "Hey, how about you just stop halfway? You take the top, we'll take the bottom." And the Russian leadership weirdly agrees to this. They wouldn't have to, but they do. And so um, I can't remember their official military ranks at the time, and maybe. General Colonel Bone Steels and Rusk in the United States, they get a copy of National Geographic. They draw a line across the middle uh, of it, the 38th Peninsula, uh, and they say 
to the Russians, well, you take the top because that's where a lot of the resources are and industry and we'll take the bottom. That's where the capital is. So it's divided to have the capital there and the industrialized part of the country for the Russians. The Russians agreed to it. And so for three years, it's agreed for three years. There'll be a period where the United States will control the bottom and they do from 1945 to 1948. The Russians or the Soviets will take the top. And then after that, There'll be elections and the Korean people can choose their own. What's weird about this, though, Bakar, is that take one of the other countries divided after World War II. Germany, right? East and West Berlin. Now, Germany did some pretty messed up things during the war. And so it was kind of likely, it was kind of understandable that, hey, you need to be punished a little bit, right? Not going to punish you too much because in World War I, they punished Germany so much that Germany then got back and did it again. But Korea was not a belligerent in that war, and yet it was divided. Japan was a belligerent, and yet it received American and Western funding and support. That kind of decision rankles a little bit here. You know, why were we divided? What did we do? This is time for our independence, and yet we're divided. That is something that, uh, you know, questions of imperialism, colonialism, and things like that... Um, Cold War politics and stuff definitely plays a role. It also must be said that I think if there was one Korean capable of uniting them at the time, maybe they would have achieved it. But again, there were different factions in Korea. There were communist factions. There were nationalist factions. There were modernization factions. You had Lee Seung-man. You had Kim Gu. You had Kim Il Sung. You had various other figures. But there wasn't that kind of one. Um, north star behind which everybody would follow if that makes sense and that mm. was to their to their detriment and so the country is divided by that and and the division you know to to be to have your freedom and then to be divided and this time by different powers and we've already spoken or people might know but in in korea in confucianism family is so important right your family comes before the state almost, right? If you're given a choice between following the order of the president or following your father, you follow your father, absolutely. You know, there's loyalty inside family. Genealogy, lineage, family is very important in Korea. And that artificial line drawn across, the, which still exists today, by the way, that artificial line, it's not a river, it's not a mountain, it's just a, a man-made line still exists today and it divides families right? and that's what it does and that would be tragic anywhere but in a culture that values family and lineage so much it's even more barbaric i think mm -hmm. it's even more hurtful uh, and you know to, to to see the nation divided like that and still be divided i wonder mm -hmm. now whether the question is is korea still divided or are they just two Koreas. I mean, I'm from the United Kingdom, uh, from Britain, and we officially recognize two Koreas. We don't see it divided. We're like, there's there's that Korea, mm. and they're legitimate, and there's that Korea, and they're legitimate. Obviously, we like this one more, but it's not a case of personal preference. There's two legitimate governments here. And so I wonder, you know, that, that might be the future for this place. Mm. I had a uh, Korean protester come up to me two weeks ago, and he gave me this little clip on where it's Korea reunited. And I think that's what and he tried explaining to me, you know, his sort of vision. Um, what's um, 
what, what is the Korean take on that? Because I, I understand there were works going on. So I think it was Moon Jae-in who had some intentions in place and had some some action going to reunite or at least start some talk between the two Koreas. Um, did that just decline and stop and then attention's now just back at back at it or what's what's the status like now? That's a, that's a, that's a whole another huge topic. There's actually a flag. So there's a flag, the unification flag that represents the whole Korean peninsula and it's blue. And so there's a symbol for it. And that was used during the Pyeongchang 2018 Olympics. The two Koreas came in together. Uh, the hockey team, the women's hockey team had uh, athletes from both. What President, uh, ex-President Moon Jae-in was doing essentially was a repeat of what uh, ex-President Kim Dae-jung was doing from 1998 to 2000, that period, right, around 2000s with his sunshine policy, which was engage, right, which was to, to try to open our doors and give help to North Korea, to try to focus on not two states, but one Nation. Now, a lot of President Moon Jae-in's, ex-President Moon Jae-in's language focused on this idea of minjok, minjok, one blood, one nation. And so when he was in Pyongyang like um, with Chairman Kim Jong-un and he was giving a speech in front of 150,000 North Koreans at the Arirang Mass Games, he would say things, President Moon Jae-in would say things such as, our people are brilliant. He's not talking about two separate uh, bureaucratic states. He's talking about mm. one nation of people. Now, you just mentioned about multiculturalism. You know, people today are more about, they're less about the ethno-nationalism. If you're 20 mm. and you grow up in South Korea and you're listening to Post Malone and you're watching Netflix and you're doing that, ethno-nationalism is not a huge pull on you. And genealogy and memory and lineage is, is not a big pull on you. And so those efforts of Moon Jae-in, uh, ex-president Moon Jae-in, I think they reflected a previous time. They were called to that, that blood. Now, uh, President Moon Jae-in, his family was from North Korea, and they escaped during the Korean War, came down on a boat. Uh, and President Moon Jae-in spoke in his autobiography of seeing his father suffer, seeing his father um, having been taken away from his family, never being able to visit his hometown. I think if you grow up like that and you become the president, you're going to try to do something to... Uh, it, it's understandable, but there's a personal reason behind that. And I would suggest that many people in South Korea today, or some people, the, the younger generation and uh, political force, they don't have those same personal reasons. They don't have those same personal connections that wants to... To, to bring them back. Some people look at it, I mean, if you look at it from an economic perspective, yeah, it'd be great. I mean, there's a bigger country, bigger population. Look at it from a cultural perspective, yep, tourism, yep. Because in a country, you can only have one leader. Mm. Who's going to lead? Like, I mean, this is the one question that, you know, nobody ever talks about. If there's going to be one leader, do you think that North Korea, who have built this on Kim Il-sung, and then his son, Kim Jong-il, and then his son, Kim Jong-un, and the whole thing is their family. Is he just going to give up his whole family legacy? No, absolutely not. That's what they've been brought up. You're not going to just undo the work of, of your father and your grandfather like that. Mm -hmm. So 
my just to make one kind of last i guess political point on this and it's kind of political but i i think there's some legitimacy to it i think some people advocate um engaging with the north for their own political expediency so if you say i'm going to meet and, and the same would apply to donald trump uh, ex-president trump if you say you're going to meet with north korea get photos shake hands with chairman kim jong-un you're going to be in the papers people are going to call you a peace guy and nothing might come of it but you're definitely going down in the history books you're going down in the history books for doing it people will remember it for better or for worse but at the end of the day who are you doing it for and what are you doing it for? Because presidents in South Korea, presidents can go to North Korea. Normal people, me and you, South Korean people can't. And so I think it's a it's a uh, reaffirming the social status rather than working towards unification. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> um, okay, so taking a step back before indulging some of the geopolitics now, um, and we'll try to we'll try to wrap up within the next ten. Um, we know that post um, post the Korean War, there was South Korea had these, you know, a, a few what would you call them? A few bumps where they had certain dictators that come, that came to be and attempted to rule the country by their, you know, well through them being the the sole sort of power and trying to change some of um, some of the constitution to allow them to rule indefinitely and mm. how Korean, how the Korean people rose up that time and time again to, you know, like say no and, and, and demand democracy and demand their representation. Um, if, if you were to just caption that period from like the 19, you know, mid 1950s to 1990, where that just, where the people struggled for democracy and, and th- there was this massive movement for like, no, we want representation, which which is one of the distinguishing things that makes Korea Korea. And, and one of the factors that answers the question, like, why is it that Korea succeeded in establishing a democracy, um, you know, contrary to its northern counterpart or other Asian um, nations? And it's this 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 nation, this, this people that just kept resisting and and kept protesting and, you know, d- did not accept. Um, dictatorship within their land so can you caption that period i see that you're pushed for time so i'll try to be quick on this why did korea establish a democracy and there are many different answers in the academic literature and they all deserve you've heard it i've given three hour lectures on the different factors but i would say in a nutshell korea achieves democracy because it has a middle class and a large middle class want political and economic representation right economic uh the an upper class already have economic stability a lower class are thinking about day-to-day survival if you have a middle class they want political and economic representation korea becomes a democracy shortly after it establishes a middle class and it's the middle class people that go out into the streets in 1987 in huge numbers numbers that you've never seen before you know, millions of people going out into the streets, bankers, post office workers, accountants, dentists. It's not just student radicals anymore. It's not just Christian groups. It's not just uh, feminist organizations, but it's basically everyone. It's your uncle going out 
and your sister going out. And when everybody goes out, it's like, well, now there's nothing we can do about it. Everybody wants this. But they wanted it because there was middle middle class had been achieved. I mean, Mark said without, the, you know, no, no middle class, no democracy. It, it, it's that. And I, I think that plays a real big role. South Korea established a middle class and it did that in many horrendous and brutal and marvelous and effective ways, whether it was putting women into sweatshops during the 1970s, whether it was the state-led uh, economic principles of Park chang with his five-year plans, taking money from Japan to build highways down to, to Daegu and Busan, and directing Chebol's family-run conglomerates and say, you do this for five years, now you build steel, now you build ships. It wasn't open market capitalism. And then it was, mm -hmm. now we'll send soldiers to Vietnam and we'll get some money from doing that. It was a very rocky and turbulent and brutal and heroic and fantastic road. And you could ask different people about this. And according to their age, some will love it, some will hate it. But it did achieve it. I think there's a very big difference between uh, some of those three leaders, Lee Seung-man, Park Chang-hee and Chan Doo-wan. Chan Doo-wan during the 1980s, uh, you'll find very few people in South Korea willing to say uh, positive words about him. Um, very authoritarian, played a, a huge role in the uh, Gwangju massacre, uh, for which that should never be forgotten. Uh, the tragedy he inflicted on the South Korean people in their 1980 demand for democracy. So democracy was achieved because Korean people wanted it, uh, because they demanded it, but it happened when they were a middle class and they'd achieved modernization. Not before, not after. Now, that's a worrying thing, because does that mean to make countries democracies? First, you have to make them rich. And that's one thing we were talking about North Korea. It gen I would imagine that North Korea, a lot of literature will show it, fear is that if you're trying to make us rich, trying to make our people rich, you're actually undermining our rule. Because if people are rich, they will develop bourgeoisie tastes, right? You're not part of the proletariat anymore. You're part of the bourgeoisie and you, and you want mod cons. You want your Netflix and your YouTubes. And so making people rich can be a very dangerous thing because then they mm. want more. So I would say that's a huge thing. It's not the only thing, but just for a short answer, South Korea achieves democracy after it has a middle class and after it has modernization, not before. <laughs> and that's a very scary thing for people around the world who say, you must be a democracy, because people could look at that and go, yeah, but first they used military dictators to achieve democratization, uh, to achieve economic uh, reju rejuvenation. So other dictators around the world could use that to legitimize their own rule. And that's what Park chung did. He said, I'm here because I'm going to make the economy better. And that's what's going to legitimize my rule because North Korea is a threat. Our country is backwards. We need to be better. And so that's how he legitimized his rule through economic things. Everything else was second. Hmm. So just on that, and this is this might be a bit separate to Korean politics, um, certain movements that I'm aware of. So, for example, um, certain movements within Middle Eastern nations, um, such as Lebanon, their current approach to achieve a healthy democracy is through changing political institutions first. And then their theory is, as a result, the economic institutions will sort of start to shift. According, according to this 
theory. Um, it seems like that's, would you say that approach isn't, I don't know, as accurate or? If you look at the literature on democratization, um, there is so many different factors. So it, it, first it depends what kind of regime is it replacing? Mm. So what comes before the democratization, they're all different things. Some might be theocracies, uh, some might be sort of communist things, some might be military dictatorships, some might be feudal societies. So what comes before is important uh, and the type of culture is important. There's a really high correlation between education and democracy. You need an educated populace if you're going to achieve democracy. So there's so many different factors uh, playing in all of this. And I think what you learn is that you can't just copy and paste one from the other, which I think is one of the faults that you might see with parts of the West or the United States with like, you know, now we're going to make you a democracy by installing this type of government. But you can you can put a Starbucks in a country, but you don't change what's inside people's head. I think democracy is an attitude, right? Democracy mm -hmm. is a way of thinking. Democracy is a culture. Democracy is a behavior. Democracy is something that's manifest. It's not just going and voting because you can go and vote and you can be a dictatorship. So um, there are many ways. And I, I don't know about Lebanon or the best ways to achieve it there, but I would suggest that the academic literature says there are many different factors. For me personally, uh, democracy is an attitude. And I grew up in a democracy. So I know it naturally, not through any awesome skills of my own, not because I'm a good person, but because that's kind of the only thing I know. Mm. Right. And if I grew up in another place in the world, I'd be looking at democracy going, yeah, sod that. That's not right. True, I think. Yeah. No, interesting. I think that's my my one of my biggest questions right now is is trying to trying to discuss the approaches and uh, my current reading why nations fail um, suggests the sort of um, symbiotic relationship between the economic institution, the political institution, and how each will have an influence on the other when it comes to establishing number one healthy healthy economic institutions, but also a healthy democracy um, and the author sort of just goes through the different, um, you know, historical periods and illustrates through examples of certain nations, how this was achieved. Um, and I guess, yeah, that taking a bottom-up approach where you assess each country's situation, then relating it back to, I don't know, maybe you'd have to look into the literature, but that's homework for me. <laughs> let, let me give you one more question before you, why is democracy desirable? Why is democracy good? Why, why are we talking about democracy as if it's something that is desirable, Bacal? What's good mm. about democracy? Yeah, I, I guess it's, I guess in, in my lens, it's, you know, representing the people, avoiding corruption. And I think simply because of... There's a lot at, of corruption in democracy. Well, of course, of course. No, most definitely, yeah, most definitely. I guess, I guess it's more so if... See, I guess it's the institution of a healthy democracy assists with, it assists, and I think it paves the way to at least reduce corruption, whereas that avenue isn't there when it comes to a certain, um, you know, a, a different sort of political institution. Um, I, I don't know if, it, if it's that democracy itself is desirable, but it's the idea of representing the people that's desirable. It's the idea of 
um, a country being economically stable that's desirable. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know if maybe I'm correlating the two too strongly. Like I was asked this question once, um, would, you, would you prefer a, a country such as, you know, such as Lebanon or other, other countries? Would you prefer a, a economically well-off dictatorship or a country that's buckling under a democracy? Um, and I, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's, I, it seems like in my understanding, again, and it's sort of, you know, um, it seems like it's supported by, um, is it the book called The End of History, um, Fukuyama, um, where he correlates the two and how it's like sort of a trajectory that um, nations will start to, you know, go towards. But yeah, that I, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> There is the end of history. <laughs> um, sorry, there's lots of books sitting around here. Um, do, very good. And, you know, you make me want to, to research and learn more about Lebanon. I have a few books on it. But um, democracy also understands that we're fallible. Democracy also says we need checks and balances. Democracy also says you can only rule for four or five years and then we're going to decide again because we know that human beings are not capable of creating systems that can, you know, there was this belief at the beginning of the 20th century that we could control people, that we could create systems of control that could mobilize and manufacture and push and, and do people, but people are emotional beings and people move. And you've seen how, you know, you could never imagine two years ago in South Korea that South Korea would have a conservative leader. And everyone's like, yay, let's vote for the conservatives. And then two years later, everyone will be like, no, let's vote for that party. Mm. People, people are fickle and emotions change and things change. And so democracy, it seems to, it might be a weakness, it might be a strength, but it, it flows with people's change, right? And if you have an established system that doesn't recognize those changes in the people, that creates a great tension. You know, mm. it's very hard to to manipulate or to move people in that way. So I think democracy understands that people are fickle and fallible and that's our great strength and that's also our great weakness. Mm. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. Okay, um, transitioning to Korea today and if we were to, or if you were to illustrate um, where Korea sits currently on the global stage, um, so positioning it between itself um, and the sort of tensions between the US and China, but also Korea and Japan and how you'd think that two similar similar institutions economically and politically would be more aligned, but uh, you know, contrary, it's, it's probably, they're probably the two most divided. Um, and then also Korea and it's South Korea, sorry, and it's, connection to ASEAN, um, if that's even how you pronounce it. Um, so how, how would you position Korea today on the global stage? Um, maybe speaking on on behalf of it being between those countries or, or others? Um, mm. Yeah. Personally, I and, and I'll come to another, but let me start personally, and I would position Korea on the global stage as a regional beacon for democracy and human rights 
Now, you can look at South Korea today and go, oh, my God, there's Christians protesting LGBTs and there's gender inequality. And you would be right to do so. Um, but look around the region. Look around. The, don't, don't look at Western Europe, but look at this region. And if you look to the north, you see North Korea uh, and then you see China and then you see Russia. Uh, if you look south, you find Vietnam. Right. Japan is is there as well. But if you look around this region, you don't find democracy and human rights as a standard, as a norm. South Korea has them and it has them really doesn't have them perfectly. But considering where it is, I, I think more people should be aware of what South Korea is doing, that, you know, it, it it's it's a light shining in a dark room sometimes if you value democracy and human rights. Mm -hmm. and, and some people might have different views on them. Um, but if you do value those, then you look at South Korea and you say, yeah, for all its problems, absolutely. Let's not compare it to France and Canada. Let's understand it in its own historical, cultural, regional and geographic context. My word, it's doing some good things because North Korea, the other Korea, which has the same history, the same culture, the same language. They're not doing that. People there don't have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of movement. They can't even leave the country, Bakar. Right. And so I think we've got to uh, acknowledge South Korea in the modern day. It's very easy to point to its failings, but I see it as, as a beacon of light in a dark room. And when I say a dark room, I, I don't mean that with any disrespect to the other countries, but I'm just trying to draw people's attention to what else is around South Korea. But because as a result of South Korea's economic success, we now compare it with France and Japan uh, and, uh, and Germany and Norway and Sweden, and we put it in those lists, mm. but we forget we forget the regional context. Um, with the uh, current president, President Yoon Suk-yeol, he has been, and you'll find this as a trend among the conservatives in South Korea, they're more focused on international norms, human rights, United Nations. Uh, for the past few years under President Moon Jae-in, uh, and this is not to say it was good or bad, but he would often stand apart from United Nations treaties on North Korean human rights, um, would not comment on Hong Kong democracy um, because it was trying to play a different game. It was trying to position itself as a regional influencer with China, with North Korea. And if it's criticizing those countries, it's going to lose its influence and power. And so under the the... We call it the left in South Korea, but I don't really think it's the left. It's just a different version of the right. Um, <laughs> but under the Democratic Party, I think they're more inclined to uh, regional stability and siding with China and North Korea on certain issues. There's been a shift uh, this year and a new president, which was unprecedented. People didn't think this would happen. They've gone back to conservatism. I don't think that means Korean people have suddenly become more conservative. I think in general, Korean people are more progressive than they were two years ago. But this party, led by uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol, they will focus more. If there's a United Nations things on human, human rights, North Korea, they'll sign it. If there's something saying about economic pressure on China for not doing things, they'll sign it. Uh, and they will be right there with the international order. Now, I think it's important, uh, two things, that first of all, that if they're going to use human rights as a weapon in the international community, that they also apply it domestically. 
Right? If mm. they're going to look at human rights in North Korea and use that as a talking point to gain kudos in the international community, then they have to look at human rights domestically and, and look at things like the LGBTQ community and look at the disabled. Right? You, you can't just have one and not the other. Uh, the other thing is they're going to have to step up their game. I mean, South Korea has huge soft power, cultural soft power, movies, dramas, all this kind of stuff, right? People love it. But in terms of accepting refugees, one of the lowest in the world. Uh, in terms of you know support for the Ukraine, when Zelensky gave a speech here in South Korea, it was in the basement. It was a video feed, a live video feed, but it was in the basement of the National Assembly and hardly anyone attended. And so if South Korea wants to push its cultural successes and and it's received a lot of economic and diplomatic support over the years, I, I, I think it also has to step up now its responsibilities. It has to say in the international community, and it has done some in the past, but I think it also has to do it and say, we're going to help out with these issues. And, and, and now there's the 10th, 11th biggest economy in the world. We've been supported and we've been helped and we've done some of it ourselves, but now we're going to give some of that support and help back to those who are uh, in need right now. So I, I think that's where it sits. I don't think the, south, uh, the soft power that it has necessarily translates into actual middle power into national relations. I think you know, lots of young people are interested in BTS and the new dramas and things, but I think it's got a long way to go in terms of uh, those kind of relations. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess that um, that aligns Korea on the, uh, you know, talking about Korea's internal politics and how that influences where Korea sits on the global platform. Now, if we were to take a turn and focus on um, South Korea specifically um, between you know, the US and China and, and the tension between the two nations, um, now, South Korea has a vested interest with both the U.S. simply because they're an ally, but also China because of um, not just the economic ties between the two, but also because of China's ties with North Korea and sort of South Korea's dependence on China. If there were ever to be um, some, I don't know, what would you say, some talks, you know, drawn between the two. Um, so where, where does South Korea sit in between the U.S.-China, uh, you know, tension? There's um, just before I answer this, I, 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 again, I'll try to be brief. There's a very interesting book out uh, at the moment by a foreign policy international relations analyst called Peter Zihan. Peter Zihan, Z-E-I-H-A-N. His latest book is called uh, The End of the Beginning, something like that. And, and what he points to in his book, it was released last month, like June 2022. And it's his fourth book. He's normally a very astute and, you know, a provocative thinker. And he pointed to two things, uh, Bakar. One was deglobalization. We're seeing the rise of America first, China first, India first, right? It, it, it's more about nations looking out for themselves. And uh, globalization was a thing, but it's not always going to be a thing. And the second thing he looked to at is demographic change. And Demography is destiny in this idea. You can't outrun your population. And he points to, in his work and things like that, China's uh, demographic jumping off a cliff. Like it's going to shrink incredibly. It's going to go from 1 billion uh, population down to about 700 million and things like this. That is 
Now, South Korea has the same problems, but um, its population is only 50 million to begin with. And so that that uh, shock is going to be noticeable, but uh, less. There's going to be fewer 30-year-olds working. There's going to be fewer 20 and 30-year-olds in the, in the society. There's literally fewer young people. And this is the demographic destiny uh, of these countries, and it's coming, right? There's all the policies that they try to think about they're already too late. I mean, this is where we are. South Korea's uh, fertility rate is about 0.7, lowest in the world. You need 2.1 to maintain the population. What you're going to get, like, during South Korea and China's boom of economic growth, their population was a pyramid, right? And so they had loads of people at the bottom and very few people at the top, right? So this is the old people and then like this. And what that meant was they had lots of people working. They had loads of people in their 20s and 30s that were spending, producing, consuming. All of those people are getting much older now, and there's fewer and fewer children. But there's also fewer and fewer people working in the 20s and 30s who work and consume. And so this is going to be a huge challenge uh, for both of those countries. And so rather than uh, policies and ideology, that is something that I think uh, people will need to pay attention to. And that affects all countries differently, especially you, you were talking about multiculturalism and immigration and things like that. That's one that's one way around it. Um, the recent presidential election earlier this year, a couple of months ago in South Korea, that was in some ways a choice between, you know, real estate prices domestically and um, uh, suggestions of hypocrisy and sexual deviancy amongst politicians but the two main candidates that were running one was very much america this order and the other one was now we kind of need to balance with china it was the america guy that won not only because that was the position but that position won and anti-chinese sentiment in south korea has never been higher traditionally historically it's anti-japanese sentiment right and that that gets used for political expediency. But anti-Chinese sentiment has never been higher. There is this feeling among some South Koreans that despite China's great size, uh, you know, China's huge economy and things like that, that South Korea believes itself to be above China because it modernized first, because it's more culturally successful. So it's not about the economy. Um day-to-day -day relations between you know the countries i've got chinese people in my class they're lovely and, and south korean people watching chinese dramas and and c-pop and things like this on the day-to-day -day level things are pretty cool you must always remember that mm -hmm. um but i would suggest that at the moment there's this move away from china uh and that's reflected in attitudes towards hong kong what's been going on there attitudes towards north korea I think Russia and Putin and, you know, who's China siding with that? It's signing with and not many South Koreans look at the situation in Hong Kong, in North Korea or in Russia and go, we want to be on that side. They don't. Right. And but that's the side that China is on. There is this division. Right? There, there are those associations for better or for worse. And so. Where will South Korea stand? I mean, it might look to other countries, the 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 K-pop and the K-dramas and things like that, they're popular like in Southeast Asia and South America. I think it's time for South... It can't escape its neighbours, but mm. 
what happens, I, I, I'm not quite sure, but anti-Chinese sentiment is very powerful political force here in South Korea at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, um, we'll tackle a last, probably the last one, and then we'll, we'll start wrapping up. Um, the relationship between uh, Korea, or South Korea, sorry, and ASEAN. Now, my understanding is Japan has a stronger tie with um, ASEAN nations. Um, perhaps because of its political stance in the region, Japan seems to take a, a more stringent um, political stance, especially against you know countries like China. Um, whereas South Korea might not be as you know explicit with its with its stance. Um, what what can you say about um, Korea, South Korea's current relations with ASEAN? Um, more more so economically, perhaps. Getting better. Getting better. You're absolutely correct to say that Japan has longer standing, greater influence. It's also a bigger economy, um, but it's and it also had a figure like for better or for worse of Abe Shinzo, uh, who was very influential in that. Whereas South Korea, one of the things you have to remember about South Korea is that it fluctuates between parties, mm. which, you know, China, Japan doesn't do that as much either. But South Korea will fluctuate between parties who are positioned this way and parties who are positioned that way. Um, one of the biggest uh, obstacles for South Korea is to see ASEAN, is to see uh, the, the southern region as something being politically and culturally, culturally legitimate and not just a source of income. As seeing, there's this concept in Korea called like Sadejui, uh, and there is this focus, I think, on achieving Western success on achieving recognition by certain nations. And you could get somebody like uh, Rose from Blackpink and, you know, her single could get number 48 on the UK charts, number 48, like, you know, fair play to her, whatever. Um, but that, that might make news. If she got number one for four weeks in Indonesia, it wouldn't make news. I think there needs to come. It's not about economy. It's about, looking at certain parts of the world and seeing them as equal to other parts of the world. And mm -hmm. that's, that's cultural, that's sociological, that's psychological. And this is not, I, I, I'm not trying to actually throw shade on Korean people here, because if you grew up in Korea and you saw the representation of that part of the world on your TV and the representations of America and, you know, Captain America and all this kind of thing for 20, 30 years, you're naturally going to think that that part of the world is more important or better than, you can't see my hands, that part of the world. I think there needs to be a psychological change. I mean, you mentioned economy, and that does play a role, but I think it's more about opening hearts and minds. That's that's what the inner hippie in me says, and that's the next challenge, because there will be money flying, and South Korea is incredibly desirable uh, amongst Asian countries, but South Korea has to reciprocate uh, with its own understanding and acceptance of those places as not just a piece of foreign policy, as not just a source of export income, but rather as legitimate countries and cultures from which they can understand and they can benefit. Uh, apologies. So we just, I just lost my internet connection. I was told South Korea's internet's one of the, well, I'm comparing to Australia. We suck with our internet. Um, but but I've had some difficulties here. <laughs> um, okay, so sorry. Back to your point about um, 
um, ASEAN, Indonesia, the cultural sort of um, perspective and how you're raised up to see, you know, certain nations? Mm, yeah. And so rather than economy, um, there was a there was a minister of the last administration who said uh, uh, it, it, it's an outlandish statement. I don't know why I'm repeating it, but it just came to my mind. And he said, if you want to call our country Hel Joson, well, instead, you should go and try and live in Southeast Asia instead. And then you'll know what it's like. And you're like, mate, you, you can't say that. You can't say that. And you're a politician. You're a member of the administration. Come on. And, and it just kind of reinforced my my view that these countries, if you're going to have economic relations with them, you need to see them uh, as equal, um, as countries that you can learn from and benefit from culturally rather than just a market for your goods. And so th that's my take on it. Uh, that mm. might not be the, the highbrow um, political economy take, but that I think would be very important for the country. Yeah. No, that's that's interesting. My only thought on that was more so ASEAN's not not a restriction on getting into ties with South Korea, but something that was placing a bit of a boundary between the two, or at least limiting their interests. But this sort of places it where South Korea doesn't seem to be as interested. Um, simply because, yeah, their view on the importance of those nations and their culture. Um, and that's that's a very interesting point. Um, we'll wrap up there. Um, thank you so much, David. I think this, this really assists. And just to put this into perspective, a lot of these podcasts relate to me, again, trying to, you know, compare nations when it comes to their um, economic, their political success, and then seeing why other nations haven't achieved that. And that's why the book that I'm currently reading, um, How Nations, uh, Why Nations Fail, like, plays a pivotal role in answering this question. And a lot of what we spoke about today just, you know, again, it just helps. It helps formulate answers, or at least it helps me think, um, you know, think of answers for, for the questions that I've, that I've been, um, you know, contending with. Um, thank you so much for this. It, it was awesome. You know, the, the way you phrase things, contextualize things. Thank you so much. And... Until next time, or before we end, do you have any last comments to say? Thank you to you, Bakar, uh, for, for talking to me about it. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I wish you the best. And I guess keep thinking about those questions. You know, why is democracy good? And what is South Korea? And, and does it matter if we fight for certain things? What would you fight for? That was another one of the questions mm. uh, that, that, that came up because that can make things worth living for. Thank you. I enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much. Cheers.